Welcome to Documental Healing the American States of Mind. I'm Whitney Fishburne, your host and producer, and today my guests are members of the Contraband Historical Society in a discussion about reparations. Pamela Holly, you are a board member of the Contraband Historical Society based in Hampton, Virginia. And yes. uh, you're also in charge of activities um, that promote the um, the history and the mission of the Contraband Society. So welcome, and Phil is fixing his phone. <laughs> Sorry. So welcome, Phil Adderley. You are the president of the Contraband Historical Society. And then, um, oh, I meant to mention, and we're going to get into what the Contraband Society is, but Pamela, you are a descendant of the Contraband Slaves. And then we have Dr. William Wiggins. You're the historian. The reason why I asked the three of you to come on the documental um, Healing the American State of Mind series was because the first video that we did included a discussion on um, how to clear the miasma or the spiritual pollution of America as described by my guest, um, Dr. Gwendolyn Reese, who suggested that democracy can only really function if the people are cleared of any kind of spiritual anguish created by a wrongful sacrifice. And then we had a discussion about wrongful sacrifice, including the genocide of native peoples to this continent and also slavery. So one thing that she suggested was reparations. And I don't really know how to get my head around how reparations would be financially possible or you know, what, it, what it would entail monetarily. But I think that even if we were to find a way to do that, in a way it's for me putting the cart before the horse because what we'd have to start with is this notion of we're going to take responsibility, all of us, all of the, all of us in this nation, all of us involved in this democracy, we'd have to take responsibility for what happened. We'd have to acknowledge it, and we'd have to say whether or not we had a part in it. We feel its impact, and we're able to say that as participants in this place, that's all of our responsibility. And once we can take responsibility, we can grieve it, and we can say we're sorry. And I think that that's really where we start here. Tell us about that night in May of 1861. Let me tell the story very quickly. And that is, we know that the Civil War had broken out officially by the 12th of April, 1861. The South claim it, claims it had seceded. And uh, at that time, of course, Virginia had not agreed to be part of the Confederacy, but would do so on the 23rd of May, 1861. We know that at Fortress Monroe, we had witnessed the arrival of Benjamin Franklin Butler on the 23rd of May, uh, 1861. He came from Massachusetts. He was born in New Hampshire, but came from Massachusetts, stopped in Maryland. He was a brevet general and became the commander of Fort Monroe officially uh, on the evening of May 23rd. Three men. Shepard Mallory, who apparently was the youngest of the three, Frank Baker, and James Townsend made their way to Fortress Monroe. And uh, they met the sentry at the Sally Port and said that they were being used to help build fortifications for the Confederacy in Norfolk at Sewell's Point. The sentry allowed them in, and the next day on the 24th, they met with 
uh, Major General, uh, General uh, Benjamin Franklin Butler, and they told the story to him, and uh, they were interrupted later that day by John Baytop Carey, who had been sent to retrieve them by their so-called owner, their enslaver, Charles King Mallory. They met on the Mill Creek Bridge and had a discussion. And during that discussion, John Baytop Carey, who was uh, a member of the militia, he demanded the return of the property, quotes around that, of Charles King Mallory. At that point, Benjamin Franklin Butler, being a lawyer by vocation, said, but you said you have seceded from the uh, United States of America, and you also have indicated that uh, this, this is property which we should have returned to us. Uh, uh, John Kerry pointed to the Compromise of 1850 that included a provision for the return of fugitive slaves. And Benjamin Franklin Butler, being a very shrewd politician and lawyer, said, well, I'm going to confiscate these individuals because we are at war with you. And just as I would confiscate weapons, ammunition, uh, uh, boats, etc., because you're waging war against us, I'm going to confiscate these uh, three men, and they subsequently became known as contraband of war. Let me say that they were not the first enslaved Africans who sought refuge at Fortress Monroe. Others had tried to do so, but were turned away. They were the first enslaved Africans who were actually allowed uh, to enter the fortress seeking asylum. And that set in force, as you indicated, uh, Sister Fishburne, the catalyst for the subsequent Emancipation Proclamation, leading all the way, of course, to the 13th Amendment, ending enslavement. May 24th, I'm sorry, it was actually the 22nd of 2011, we had the 150th commemorative uh, event of the contraband decision at Fortress Monroe. Um, and it was the same year that the, because of the BRAC closure, Fort Monroe was to be shuttered. Uh, the city of Hampton uh, bestowed upon Ms. Hollins a proclamation that May 24th is contraband day in the city of Hampton. Uh, subsequent years, it was adopted by the Fort Monroe Authority, that is the management uh, uh, entity over the Fort Monroe properties, uh, as well as the National Park Service that was newly coming in. Uh, which actually didn't happen until November when uh, Barack Obama signed it into law as a, as a, a, a portion of the National Park Service. Uh, we have been annually uh, conducting a commemorative event at Fort Monroe. Uh, we have asked for a place of, rec of, of settling that we could, the society could actually have a place yeah. on the post mm -hmm. so that we can tell our own story. Mm -hmm. uh, or augment whatever the National Park Service or the Fort Myer Authority wishes. And we've asked for a archaeological research of any remains uh, on posts or otherwise point comfort for that matter. Uh, and still have not gotten much uh, of a response other than the fact that the Army, uh, Army's first uh, research, historical research, indicated that there were no burials on posts. Um, if, I, if I may add, Brother Adelaide, pardon the interruption, 
as you've indicated, uh, our visibility increased significantly when the National Park Service Director Terry E. Brown and others embraced us more than ever before and helped underwrite the programs that uh, we actually put on, including, as I indicated before, last year you asked about programming and events, the 4th of May, 19, uh, 2019, the 4th of May, we had a very, very successful and fantastic program at Fortress Monroe and had many individuals, including descendants, in addition to Pamela Holly, who showed up for the program. And since then, we've been recognized as a partner uh, with uh, the Fort Monroe Authority, with the National Park Service, and um, we partnered with them in the past, as Brother Adley has pointed out. And so we have a clear understanding and niche that every year we will commemorate the decision that became known as a contraband decision of May 24th, 1861. So it doesn't sound like it was actually that difficult to get recognition, but um, is that true? We agitated, agitated, and agitated, and it, it took a while. It took a while, but it was a matter of getting the history out there. And you did indicate in your correspondence with us that um, you were not asking for us to, uh, to rewrite history, and that is not what we were trying to do. We were trying to revise an inadequate, unacceptable history. I am not a revisionist. Revisionists are usually individuals who have a political agenda, as you well know, and they are frequently reactionary. We do have to rewrite it in the sense that it has to be revised, but not in a revisionist way. I just wanted to, to underscore that. But the contraband uh, decision, as it came to be known, is still not uh, known in an extensive way. Uh, we are still pushing to have more recognition. We have more comments, as you know, about the Declaration of Independence, which, of course, was not to apply to Africans. We hear all of that in this environment concerning Black Lives Matter. But we need to make sure we have the continuity and understanding that it goes back to the landing of the first enslaved Africans at Point Comfort on August the 25th, 1619. What would you see reparations as looking like, as, as an actual thing? Do you see it as just checks being written? Do you see it as there being a ritual where every year we acknowledge that the contraband slaves, Shepard Mallory, Frank Baker, and James Townsend uh, were these three very clever and heroic men. How would this look in practice? It is going to be very difficult to do a monetary reparation, but it's clear that African Americans historically have been dispossessed, have not had opportunities, and opportunities now need to be provided. Funding needs to be made available. We need to definitely go back and say these things occurred, so we're now going to provide money to take care of individuals who have not had health care, that's a form of reparations as well. Uh, there's so many ways we can look at reparations without mm -hmm. simply saying that it's a monetary thing. We're not simply looking at reparations for contraband. We're looking at reparations for all descendants of enslaved Africans in the United States. We know that in Asheville, North Carolina, you probably are aware, and Brother Adelaide and I discussed it, they did pass a measure, the city council, to provide reparations to descendants of enslaved individuals. 
and that comes in the form of housing improvement, funding for programs, educational funding, for making sure that loans are available, in particular given redlining. All of that can occur because we know the history here of institutional racism prevented Africans and descendants, myself included, from having a fair opportunity. So I would suggest that for redress in terms of reparations, that we go back and look at all of the instances wherein schools were underfunded that were attended by African Americans, segregated schools. I went to a segregated school, elementary school for a short period of time, and the proportion of money was quite disproportionate, as we know. So we can start by looking at HBCUs, historically black colleges and universities as well. We need to look at the areas where many African Americans live today in squalor, lack of funding, and also job opportunities. Those are forms of reparations that we can actually mm-hmm. embrace and see. Okay, so and just to give you an idea, and it, it really is not that difficult to do. And um, America became what it is today economically because of free labor of those enslaved Africans who got no money by and large for what they did. Reparations is not a check. Reparations is acknowledging that you are, that all of us here deserve and and are not entitled. I, we, the language has been stolen from us because entitled now means something entirely different. But it is your right. And, and, and it's kind of this dual situation where we're saying, you're saying reparations to repay us, re- reparations are actually what you were guaranteed to begin with. So it's not so much about giving on top of it's saying we're going to make good on what we've already promised. And I think that that's the key here is, is that people need to stop and think about this. So, you know, it's such a fraught topic. People get really upset. Oh, it's impossible. How are we going to make reparations for all these people? We don't have the money for that. I've heard such crazy arguments, but I've never actually heard it explained in terms of, of a process of what could be possible, just that it's not possible because who would find the money for that? It's actually philosophical more than anything else. It comes back down to whether or not we believe that a government has a responsibility to provide everything you've just suggested. Clean and and drinkable, well, I'm adding this, clean and drinkable water, access to education, opportunities for uh, employment that are not exploitive. Yes. And those are all the things that I took for granted that I would have made available to me growing up in this country, I took that for granted, whereas so many others in this country have not been able to take that for granted at all. Absolutely. And so, so that's where I think reparations actually begins, is with this, as you say, not revising, but reframing the realities that we're dealing with. And then working within that, reparations is not only possible, it becomes incumbent, because then we can acknowledge the equality and the fairness that's inherent to what you're asking for. The soul of America is being re-examined now. That soul Mm -hmm. has been so exploitative, and there are many souls in America who are not African-Americans whose soul has not changed at all. But with the unfortunate deaths of African-Americans and the double standard of policing that we're also aware of that is so 
so evident now and the confusion that uh, this country is fraught with at this point in time, America's soul is being re-examined and I am heartened by the fact that there are many European Americans who are now realizing that we've been dealt a very, very unfair hand historically and let's wake up and acknowledge that a great wrong has been done. The enslavement of Africans was the second major sin. The first, uh, the original sin was the dispossession of indigenous people of their lands when Europeans came to the Americas and stole the land, etc. That was the original sin. And then the second major sin, and we've been sinning ever since. So the soul has to be redeemed. Right. That is pretty much what my first guest in the series said and used uh, previous examples of democracy to show that that's really the only time that a democracy will work is when you atone, basically, where you clear and you say, but it, not, not atone in a, in a shallow way, but atone with meaning. And, and that's what I wanted to ask your opinions about was, is money enough? Because money just seems like a one-time thing. It's, it's really more about understanding all of the interconnectedness of our actions and of, of, our, of our impact on one another. What do you think is the potential here in this moment? You're saying we're, we're having a soul crisis, essentially, and we're asking questions we've not been willing to ask at the level that we're asking before. But you know that there's also a lot of pressure against not going in the direction of healing. There's, there seems to be this, this kind of coming down on making it even more the way it's been. So where do you see the tension leading based on your experience of trying to get attention for the, the contraband slaves that are your ancestors or that are people in history that you wanted acknowledged in the last 20 years? Do you, do you think that there's a momentum that we could ride someplace new? Um, as we were talking about reparations, what's needed, even with, um, we know our people have college degrees and they're still not hired, they're not able to get jobs just because uh, one thing, their skin color, they have degrees hanging on the wall at home, but they're not able to be hired. Also, another, another thing that holds them back is, especially in our state, there's so many uh, other tests that you have to take even after you get your degree. And uh, another main problem is you can't get hired because you don't have experience and nobody will hire you. So you still enslaved, you're trapped. If, if there are uh, people who are willing to acknowledge or willing to uh, step up, you know, and accept people for their background, for their education, their, their degree has value as well as the other people. What lessons have you learned that might give us hope for there being um, a, a reframing of, of what has happened in the African-American experience that could lead to the reparations we're talking about? So to make what, what Pamela is talking about more um, likely, you know, what's going to wake people up and not just say, oh, yeah, I guess that's a bad thing, but cause them to act. I always saw this as an educational issue where America is not fully educated as it seems to purport. Um, like, for instance, the Confederate statues. The question in my mind is, has anybody asked uh, African-Americans why it's so offensive, one, but then what else can be done? Instead of taking them down, how about putting forward at least a portion of some of that money that was 
spent, that was both tax dollars as well as Confederate dollars, to erect a monument. But yet you have an educated America on African-American history, which really is American history. So even in just saying it, there's a, you just seem to be in a tizzy, in a conundrum, where nothing seems, the words don't even seem to matter. Because if you knew your history, if America knew its history full, there should be no reason to ask for what has already been written in the law that should be. 40 acres and a mule was written. It is written. It was promised. So again, in going back and really saying you're going to be educated, that's why knowing the history and what has happened is so important. Contrabands has done more for your freedom today than any Confederate officer, as an example. But yet, America does not know that. Well, looking at that, it's, it's very critical. I would suggest, uh, as James McPherson and others, that without the assistance of the United States colored troops, as they were called, and Africans in America, because they were not yet citizens, uh, the Confederacy may have won. It's just that we had, uh, quotes around we, the North had more bodies, if you will, in addition to manufacturing and things that uh, the Confederate uh, states did not have. But looking carefully at this whole thing, it was a, a process. You had the first Confiscation Act in uh, 1861, then you had two more in 1862, a second Confiscation Act, and then the Militia Act, in which allowed uh, Africans in America to become part of the United States uh, Army. And of course, with the Emancipation Proclamation, which only applied to those uh, Confederate states in rebellion and which had not been sub subdued, then you had the recruitment in a very extensive way of Africans who joined the United States Army, who joined the Navy, etc., and who would die in disproportionate numbers because of racism, etc. And even there, there should be reparations. Uh, the uh, pay that they received, obviously, was much less. Uh, they actually had to buy their uniforms. Uh, European, uh, American, uh, white soldiers, Union soldiers actually had money given to them for their uniforms. I can go on and on. So close to 200,000 plus Africans in America helped uh, subdue the Confederacy. And we had at least, um, uh, out of the 200,000, we had at least, uh, I would say about 80,000 Africans in America who were part of the United States military forces who were killed. And some of them were actually killed by their own comrades, by Union soldiers who shot them in the back. So where we are right now in history is we, we are, um, since this summer, we have a lot more Black Lives Matter protesting and an awareness from uh, non-Black communities. So we have the, the social justice movement. We also, in the last five years, have had the opening of the Smithsonian African American Museum, History Museum. Um, we had a Black president, and we went far to the other side of where that was leading. We have another election coming up. Where are we in this moment in terms of how to make the emphasis on true reparations, which you've already explained would be to include equal opportunity in society and treat everyone with respect and dignity. And 
a perspective on history that looks backward with a wider lens. So how do what do we need to do to move forward? You know, you you guys are not you're you're experienced in the last 20 years of teaching. Now we have people on the street protesting. Where's the middle ground that that we can all use to to keep a momentum that's constructive? It's a difficult question because everyone has a different set of ideas. I want us to make sure, as the late John Lewis, who's being eulogized in various ways today, said, keep your eyes on the prize, and that is equality. And that does not include destruction. We know that there are individuals who are clearly misguided, but there are those who are very peacefully demonstrating, many of them European-Americans, white Americans, and they now are seeing and feeling what John Lewis and others have felt and what I felt when I marched one time in 1962. Let me ask you this as an historian whose um, work has focused on what you call the, the psychosocial history, the psychohistory of things. What you're saying is, in, in theory, easy to see carrying out. But in practice, I wonder if it comes down to a better understanding of why people are racist to begin with. Because so many people say, I'm not racist. I've never done anything overtly hurtful to a black person or an Indian or a Mexican or whatever. Anybody with a brown with, with skin that's not white. There are so many white people who would say, but I'm not racist. I don't understand this. Why am I accused of this? And that's part of the conversation I think that we're starting to have, but it's a really difficult one. So what is racism? We know that, that there's quite a bit of unconscious bias. Individuals are very conscious of the color of one's skin. That's the first thing you see when you encounter a person. You don't see male or female. You see the color of their skin. And individuals have been conditioned to understand and see that they have had a better position and set of opportunities and privilege compared to those individuals who have stereotypically been categorized as uh, unintelligent, as um, uh, destructive, as uh, individuals who do not uh, take care of themselves. So it's a vicious cycle. And um, individuals who would suggest that they are not aware of their privilege and the racism that they uh, a harbor need to be awakened. And we see that many individuals who are not African-Americans are saying, yes, that I have had all kinds of advantages and privileges, and I'm going to try to work against those, <laughs> those uh, unconscious realities that were so much and are still so much a part of my being. It's systemic, and it's very difficult for individuals to get rid of something that is embedded in them. And uh, you may suppress it, but it comes to the fore, especially when you have facilitators, as I said, and you see what's happening now uh, during this uh, pre-election cycle. So thank you, Dr. Wiggins. And then um, Phil and, and Pamela, with your successes, getting attention for the contraband um, historical society, what gives you hope that what Dr. Wiggins is Wiggins is talking about would be possible in a meaningful way that would lead to the kinds of reparations that we've been discussing. People are starting to realize America is not uh, what they thought it was. Mm -hmm. and, and people are realizing they don't want to be what they 
are told to be. They want to be human, not inhuman. They want to be kind. They, they want to care. So what I see with uh, different groups coming up with reconciliation, uh, I see people opening up their hearts. It gives me hope that people are opening up their hearts. And I believe that we will be able to uh, continue because now with the coronavirus, they are actually getting some of what we've been going through our whole life. So now, so now they can relate to what we have had to suffer through. Not having what you need. Being, being evicted because you don't have the finances. Uh, not being able to have a job. You know, your business is just gone. So now they're starting to see what we have actually lived through for generations, generations and generations, ever since we've been here, not being able, everyone not being able to be successful, not just a handful, but everyone. It shouldn't be where we're in a country that decides where you live. Just like the house I'm in, my uh, before this house could be built, these three houses on this corner, uh, black, black people and Jews weren't allowed to be here. They had to go to the courthouse and change the laws just so these three houses could be built on this side of Shell Road in Virginia. Mm -hmm. These are the kinds of things that we have had to go through, whereas a privileged European or white person, they could just, if they want to build a home and they have the money, they might have to worry about Okay, we got to go to the courthouse. We got we not allowed. Whites not allowed. We don't we, we haven't seen where whites are not allowed. But we have seen where everyone else is not allowed. Did you want to add anything Phil? Thank you. I I, I want to come back to what you said, but I want to make sure that I let Phil jump in. Uh, I I just want to drive home the point that I think it's still education. Uh what what I've seen been able to accomplish has all been through a process set by the status quo. And that process has been delayed and delayed through each regime change. Mm -hmm. So as you have a new governor, a new city manager, a new president, the rules of quote unquote the process to just being heard, let alone getting the vote and the backing from the populace to put a bill through. Uh, I mean, I can tell you story of how a national park was, was was at least begun to be formulated in the early 2006 era, which where, where um, Virginia senators sitting in Virginia and making decisions had no idea of the contraband decision. So they never they, heard of it historically? They, they did not know. I spoke to Governor Kane at my church lobbying for a, a colleague that became a, a Democratic senator uh, because of the lobbying in 2008. And go then Governor Kane did not know about the contraband decision. And I point blank asked him for a meeting. So again, America has not educated itself fully in everyday citizenry to really understand how the freedoms that you enjoy come to be, came to be and continually on the backs of those that did the most with the least. America is suffering clearly from that continued dilemma
the gap between ideology and reality. Ideology and reality. Our ideology is wonderful. The reality is horrible. It's unacceptable. America is not a democracy. It is a republic because democracy comes from the word demos, which means people, the Greek word, which means one person, one vote. We have individuals who have had the greatest number of votes cast and they didn't become what? The president of the United States. America needs to wake up. America is not what it says it is. It never was. It's all about trying to become what we say we are. And I would like to see us become a true de inclusive democracy. The reparations need to be addressed. Recognition for those individuals who have accomplished various things and equal opportunity and privilege. We have earned it. It hasn't been until now that we've gone to such an extreme of how this perspective is a losing perspective, this perspective of hierarchy where there is somebody at the top and the rest of us have to stay below so that that person at the top can always be the winner. The 1%, it really does exist. And they are the ones with control to the resources. It's painful, but it's also, I'm excited by it because now I realize I can do something about it. And that's why I say, look, reparations to me looks like it is more than just let's hand somebody a check. Let's actually feel it in ourselves, what, what that's like. Because I don't sleep well, I don't feel well knowing that I've participated in something that meant somebody else experienced pain that was unnecessary. And I think that's really what's the important part here is, is we're having this tension between a voice at the top saying pain is anathema to being to being successful. We must win at all costs. Well, if you win at all costs, that means you must hate what's vulnerable. I really appreciate hearing what you have to say because it enriches my life and gives me an opportunity to think, what did I take for granted? Because I don't want to take it for granted anymore because actually living a life where I have to think about what it is that I'm doing to sustain it for myself is a way that I can then help sustain it for you and for anyone else who needs an energy of sustenance around them. So I really do think of this as a, I think of this as, as truly a spiritual crisis of this, of this country. And I have been saying that, it's funny you, you picked up on that, Dr. Wiggins. America is having a soul crisis right now. When all of us are out on the boat, let's say the four of us, and uh, we got a major leak in the boat. What? We're all in the same boat for the first time, <laughs> same situation. <laughs> so, so we're all going down, we don't get rescued. I've been wondering about this because um, I don't want to be self-congratulatory. I don't think of myself as ever having been racist, but I have been perhaps ignorant. And would you say it's fair or not? How, how would you respond to me saying, I think a lot of white people aren't racist, but they're ignorant. Is that no, fair? No. Or? That's what Phil said, education. That's exactly what I've been saying. Yeah. Education and lack of knowledge, and then along with that, the lack of willingness to change. Because listen, human beings uh, are interesting, just like animals. We are, we are animals, really. And if you're threatened, you dig in. Mm -hmm. And you prefer, mm -hmm. you prefer to be at the top of the heap. Let's put it this way. That's what competition's all about. Now, if you have equal opportunity, 
well then, you know, some are going to win and some are going to lose. And you don't have a whole lot to say about that. I'm an old track and field person, so is Phil. I mean, I ran with Tom Carlos and Vinnie Matthews and Frank Shorter, and I was a bad runner at one point. In time. I, was, I used to be a bad man, as Muhammad Ali once said. But guess what? I wasn't badder than them. And I, but, but I had equal opportunity, except that they were naturals, and the Lord just didn't give me everything they had. I hear you, Doc. And I ran with Edwin Moses, but he was That's right. better than wow. I was. That's right. But let's go back to what you're saying then, Phil, because um, I d you're right. You have been talking about education, and, and I just, you know, the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement is, is honed in on racism, ending racism. But I'm wondering if that's ultimately not going to be as comprehensive as it needs to be. That instead, as you're saying, now let's ground that in practicality. Education is not only the antidote to potential racism, it's definitely the antidote to ignorance. Because sometimes racism, or sometimes ignorance that leads to racism is actually a choice. So that's, I don't know what you do with that. That's a choice. People who want to believe that they're better than someone else, that, I don't know, is that ignorance? Some, yes, I mean, it's, it's a very complicated thing, but, 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 but I'm willing to be educated, and I know I'm not alone in that at all. So I, I think that's why, you know, just to say we're going to end racism, we also have to end ignorance. So I would, I would just offer that when you talk about diversity, that seems to have been um, ushered in in companies that uh, implicit bias is the training you have to go through. But with the training of implicit bias, there is no mention of racism which would be the biggest and first and foremost bias, implicit or otherwise, as far as I see it. But then moving forward, when you look at education as mandated by law, separate but equal, all you have to do is make it equal. And then when you say we're in a capitalistic society, if everybody prospers, everybody spins, everybody wins. Those are some simple to me, mathematical, uh, technological, uh, and educational tools that we have, but we're not using simply because of biases called racism. When we're all leveled, like we've been by the coronavirus, then it's not a question of, oh, well, I'm educated now, but if I want to change the system, that means I have to give up something. People are really loath to give up something that makes them comfortable. I, I would be hard pressed to do that too. I think I'm human and this is what you're saying. I think that that's human. That's not, there's no judgment on that. But now we've, we don't have to worry about that for the large part is what Pamela was saying. We are all leveled now. So recalibrate our values is what I took away as the lesson reading about the contraband historical society that this is what you were, you were doing all along was saying, we don't want to rewrite history as Dr. Wiggins has already explained. But we just want to reframe it from a perspective of we all have the right to tell a story. All stories of our lives and our ancestors are important. Nobody's is more important than anyone else's. So we all have, we should all have the same access to the same resources instead of rebuilding it from the top down again. Do I understand your perspective properly? Absolutely. One of the pieces very critical in all of this. We're the best examples and representatives of what we are about.
not having somebody else objectify us and write about and talk about us say that. Well, I want to thank you, all three of you, for representing your contraband society point of view, your personal points of view, and uh, and for hearing my point of view. I don't presume any of us speak for our entire communities, but I think that our points of view personally do give good entry points to thinking more broadly. And um, it's been a real privilege to, to have this dialogue and also just to um, get to know you. So thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. Thank bye you. Bye. All right, thank you. Okay, bye-bye.